This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Welcome to Inside COVID-19. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. In this episode of Inside COVID-19, we focus on vaccine rollout in Africa and elsewhere. We hear from Professor Shabir Mahdi, a vaccines expert at the University of the Witwatersrand. And we also hear from Chief Executive Officer of AstraZeneca, Pascal Sorio, who says supply partners are getting ready to produce hundreds of millions of doses of their vaccine. Also in the program, Nobel laureate Michael Kremer shares insights with the International Monetary Fund on his research into how to expedite the production and distribution of the COVID-19 vaccines. We also share some highlights from the first Business Great Debate, which features Pandas Nick Hudson and health policy expert Professor Alan Whiteside exploring the pros and cons of lockdowns to curb the spread of COVID-19. First, the COVID-19 news making world headlines. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. As of this weekend, just under 62 million people worldwide have tested positive for COVID-19 and the number of deaths is approaching 1.5 million. Just under 13 million people have tested positive in the United States, which is the country hardest hit by the coronavirus. 264,000 people are reported as having died of the disease in the U.S., according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center. South Africa is number 14 on the list of the countries with the highest number of COVID-19 deaths at just under 21,300 people. U.S. stocks edged higher on Friday as gains across shares of technology and healthcare companies pushed the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq Composite towards new closing records. That's according to the Wall Street Journal. The WSJ says investors appear to be looking ahead to next year, betting that COVID-19 vaccines will curb the pandemic and allow social and business activity to return to normal. The number of people hospitalized in the U.S. due to coronavirus surpassed 90,000 for the first time. Mass vaccination against COVID-19 is unlikely to start in Africa until midway through next year, and keeping vaccines cold could be a big challenge. That's according to the continent's disease control group. Health campaigners are worried that Africa will find itself near the back of the queue for COVID-19 vaccines after wealthier nations signed a raft of bilateral vaccine supply deals with pharmaceutical companies. South Africa has paid COVAX 500 million rand to ensure that it has adequate COVID-19 vaccine supplies. Finance Minister Tito Mboweni has said he will find 4.5 billion rand in the country's budget to ensure that South Africa is at the front of the queue when vaccines are rolled out. Medical News Today says that although the introduction of an effective vaccine may allow life to return largely to normal, the eradication of SARS-CoV-2 is unlikely. Humanity is probably going to have to live with the virus, which may eventually become seasonal, it says. Therefore, treatments will still be necessary in cases where people do contract the virus and develop COVID-19. Treatments are also important in concert with vaccine development, as no vaccine is 100% effective, it says. Although there are not yet any approved medications that can cure or even prevent COVID-19, several treatments have been under investigation, 
including the experimental Ebola drug Remdesivir. A new study that researchers at Goethe University Frankfurt shows that the anti-bleeding drug aprotinin tracelol can stop SARS-CoV-2 from entering host cells. The authors say that aprotinin could prevent COVID-19 from progressing to a severe systemic disease. These findings appear in the journal Cells. COVID-19 has produced an alarming increase in loneliness. A survey finds that the coronavirus pandemic is having a troubling effect on the psychological health of young adults. Viviana Horigian from the University of Miami says that addressing mental health and substance use problems in young adults, both during and after the COVID-19 pandemic, is an imperative. Her statement is in response to her new study which investigates the psychological impact of the coronavirus pandemic on young adults. The study has found an alarming increase in loneliness since the arrival of COVID-19. In the survey of just over 1,000 people aged 18 to 35, 80% of participants reported significant depressive symptoms. Her research appears in the Journal of Psychoactive Drugs. Without a coronavirus vaccine, this airline won't let you fly. Qantas Airlines has announced that it will be amending its terms and conditions to include a mandate that international travellers get a COVID-19 vaccine before flying once the vaccine becomes available. Bloomberg reports that UK outbreaks of COVID-19 have stopped spreading exponentially. Government scientists estimate that Britain's nationwide transmission rate for the outbreak, or R number, has fallen to 0.9. The measure is below 1 for the first time since September the 4th, which would mean the virus is no longer spreading exponentially. Austria will share the vaccine doses it gets under the European Union's joint procurement program with nearby countries. The country is entitled to 2% of the EU's vaccine order, which is probably more than needed domestically, says Bloomberg. Russia hopes to start supplying vaccines next month to Hungary, the first European country that has received samples and documents of the Russian treatment. Russia has also invited Hungarian doctors to observe testing and production in its local laboratories. Malaysia is to give the Pfizer shot to 20% of its population. UK researchers will begin testing a commonly available anti-inflammatory drug as part of a key trial by the University of Oxford. Colchicine will be administered to at least 2,500 COVID-19 patients in the recovery trial and it will be analysed for its potential to reduce mortality when compared with standard of care. The trial, which has enrolled 18,000 patients so far, is expected to take several months to complete. The UK is moving to get vaccines approved before the EU. Its Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, has asked the UK medical regulator to potentially bypass its EU counterpart and approve the supply of AstraZeneca's COVID vaccine to speed its deployment. The state at the centre of Australia's worst coronavirus outbreak has gone 28 days with no new case of the virus. One of the world's strictest and longest stay-at-home orders enabled Victoria to crush community transmission after a daily peak of about 700 cases in early August, says Bloomberg. The success means Australia will be among a handful of Western nations that can look forward to Christmas with limited restrictions on family gatherings and what authorities are calling a COVID-normal summer. Hundreds of thousands of Argentines took to the streets of Buenos Aires to mourn Wednesday's death of soccer icon Diego Maradona upending the nation's strict COVID-19 restrictions. France's hospitalizations continued to fall from their November 16th peak on Thursday, with the number of severely ill patients in ICU at the lowest in more than three weeks. The total number of coronavirus cases in Germany topped 1 million for the first time on Thursday. This is one day after the government extended a partial shutdown just before Christmas. Numbers in New York show no sign of letting up. 
Bloomberg reports that hospitalizations in the state topped 3,000 to their highest level since June the 1st, while new infections hit just under 7,000, which is the highest tally for seven months. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. Next, BizNews reporter Linda van Tilburg reports on the latest developments on COVID-19 vaccines that are set to be rolled out after showing positive results in trials. This is Linda von Tolberg for Bears News. When news broke that both Pfizer and Moderna have developed vaccines that are more than 90% effective against the coronavirus, markets rallied and hope surged that this is the silver bullet that will curb the virus that has decimated economies and caused the deaths of more than 1.3 million people. But soon it dawned that it would probably not be feasible to roll it out all over the world because of its unique storage requirements of sub-Antarctic temperatures, which will be a challenge for middle and lower income nations. Added to that is the cost of the vaccines and supply constraints. But this week, results of the Oxford-AstraZeneca clinical trial was released with news that it is also effective against COVID-19. In those that received two full doses, the vaccine was 70% protective, which may sound disappointing compared to the efficiency of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, but it appears to work even better when an initial half dose is administered to prime the immune system, followed by a full dose with protection rising to 90%. Professor Andrew Pollard from Oxford University said this could be a vaccine for the world. I mean, a, a really exciting today, and I, I think you can uh, see from comments Sarah's made and, and the Vice Chancellor uh, how excited we are to have these results, uh, which means that we have a vaccine for the world because we've we've got a vaccine which is highly effective. It prevents severe disease um, and hospitalisation, and uh, intriguingly, in the results, although the, the headline is seventy percent protection, uh, we do have a subgroup who got a half dose as the first dose and then a full dose as the second dose uh, where we saw 90% protection. I mean, I think in terms of uh, what's going on with the immune response, I mean, we think that by giving a smaller first dose that we're priming the immune system differently. We're setting it up better to respond. And what we don't know at this moment is whether that difference is in the quality or the quantity of the immune response. And that's something we're going to be digging into over uh, the next weeks. And we've already started um, some work this morning uh, to try to answer some of those questions, having only seen these results um, in detail over the weekend. So there's more work to do on that. These are really exciting results. And because the vaccine can be stored at fridge temperatures, it can be distributed around the world uh, using the normal immunization distribution system. And uh, so our goal is to make sure that we can have a vaccine that was accessible everywhere. I think we've actually managed to do that. So it's a very exciting day. And I think I'd like to just pay tribute to the enormous numbers of researchers here in Oxford, uh, the 19 trial sites around England, Scotland and Wales, and our partners in Brazil and South Africa, also academic groups, have been supporting this work to uh, bring together the results that that we were able to announce uh, this morning. AstraZeneca has drawn up agreements to make 2 billion doses of its vaccine by the middle of next year. Through Europe's Inclusive Vaccine Alliance, up to 400 million doses of the Oxford vaccine will be supplied to European nations, 
as early as this year. The chief executive officer of AstraZeneca, Pascal Soriot, said supply partners have been engaged to produce hundreds of millions of doses of their vaccine. You have to consider our partners, uh, Serum Institute in India, that has already 40 million doses and a capacity of a billion doses, and will take care of India, of course, but also the Gavi countries. We have a partner called Fiocruz in uh, Brazil who is manufacturing already. We have partners in Latin America. We have another partner for Russia, our farm, that is also um, that has a large capacity of a billion doses next year. So, you know, we very soon we'll see the entire supply chain, including partners, start uh, producing hundreds of millions of doses. I just want to say again, we are very excited with the appropriate dosage regimen. Uh, people will get a 90% protection. Importantly, no severe cases we are seeing and no hospitalization. So it's a very, very attractive uh, vaccine, I must say. The operations effort and has put together what no company has ever done, the largest manufacturing network around the world to deliver billions of doses. The good news, by the way, about the, the regimen that works the best is that it only uses half the dose of vaccine for the first shot. So we can vaccinate more people faster because, of course, those number of doses is key, but also how quickly we vaccinate people is extremely important. So being able to vaccinate more people faster is really a big So the big question is, when will it be available in South Africa? The University of the Witwatersrand that is leading the COVID-19 clinical trial in South Africa has described the results as encouraging. Professor Shabir Mahdi, the Executive Director of Vaccines and Infectious Diseases at WITS, pointed out that the results announced by Oxford and AstraZeneca have been released following a pooled interim analysis of the Phase 3 arms of the studies in the United Kingdom and Brazil. These results did not include analysis of the 2,100 South African participants in the global trial. He said, as for many other vaccines, genetic factors and local conditions could also affect the performance of the vaccine in different populations. The results from the study are intriguing in that the dose-bearing regimen may inadvertently end up being more protective. This has implications not only for the cost of the vaccine, but also how many people could possibly be vaccinated in the near future when vaccine supply is likely to be constrained. Also, the ability to scale up production of this vaccine and it only needing to be stored at 2 to 8 degrees Celsius would greatly assist in the deployment of the vaccine in low and middle-income countries. The cost of this vaccine is also anticipated to be much cheaper than other COVID-19 vaccines that have recently been shown to be efficacious. The results of the study from the South Africa remain of global interest and to inform recommendations on COVID-19 vaccine in Africa as the COVID-19 vaccine experience in South Africa has been very different compared to the United Kingdom. The study had further hope that the timely accessing of affordable COVID-19 vaccines to fight this pandemic are fast becoming a reality. Professor Mahdi did not give an idea of when this vaccine would be available in South Africa. Coming up, the International Monetary Fund's Bruce Edwards speaks to Nobel laureate Michael Kremer about his research, which focuses on how to expedite the production and distribution of the COVID-19 vaccines immediately following successful medical trials.
Does each country need to be building its own capacity installations or could we think more of a, you know, a way of distributing from perhaps like a, a node system where you have half a dozen countries that are manufacturing uh, these vaccines and then distributing to various countries? Uh, I guess my question is, you know, how feasible is it for a country like Zimbabwe, for example, to be building manufacturing capacity? And how much should they depend on countries that could actually or can actually afford to be doing that? If you, if you look at the existing systems in this industry, like many industries, there's different, you know, there's a complex production process and complex supply chains that draw on, you know, many different parts of the world. So very few vaccines are made entirely with, uh, within one country. You know, there are many things that go into uh, production of vaccines, things like the bioreactors where the actual bulk vaccine is made. There are adjuvants, which uh, sort of boost the effect of the vaccine. Then there's what's called the fill and finish, which has to do with getting that vaccine into, into syringes, for example. And this is actually, you would think, you know, glass vials to put the vaccine in, not a big deal. Turns out it's very specialized glass made in a few places. Hmm. So we actually do have global supply chains. And I think it would be actually very counterproductive to say we're going to build a separate factory in each country to produce the vaccine and, and try to aim for uh, you know, complete isolation. It's just not an efficient thing to do to set up for each country, no matter how large or small, to set up its own production. Now, of course, it might well be efficient to take the what's called the bulk vaccine and then send it for fill and finish to a, you know, something located in a particular region of the world and have that done uh, locally, just because when you when you're starting to talk about transporting at at very low temperature, things packaged in individual doses, well, then you need a lot of uh, a lot of cooling material around that that, and it's so yes, maybe you would do some steps of the production on a more distributed basis, but I think a lot of this it's it's efficient to have a fair amount of centralization, and then to do this through trade, and in fact. You know, that's a lot of the deals have been seen are do cross borders. So, you know, one early deal was the U.S. buying the AstraZeneca vaccine. That's a vaccine that was developed in, in Oxford, uh, in the UK. And, you know, I think it's vital to maintain countries' ability to, to do, do deals across borders. And I, I wish there were more such deals. Um, you know, two of the biggest players, uh, in, in vaccine production, but also, two very large countries that will need a lot of vaccine are China and the U.S. Yeah. China is pursuing what's called live attenuated vaccines. Um, it's possible that those vaccines will succeed and that the, the more higher tech uh, vaccines that the U.S. is specializing in won't. It's also possible that we'll have the opposite outcome. This is not something where you want to put all your eggs in one basket. It would make sense for China to be placing orders with U.S. producers for um, to, to, to have that capacity installed so that China could be served if, if it turns out that the vaccines that are produced within China don't work out. And by the same token, it would make sense for the U.S., assuming that China would put in, uh, that there are adequate you know, regulatory processes and the data was shared. And, you know, this might take some negotiation, but ideally, if it did turn out that one of the Chinese vaccines succeeded and some of the uh, vaccines in, in development in the U.S. or elsewhere don't succeed, 
it's in the national interest of the U.S. to get access to that vaccine. There's really, you know, one of the most basic lessons of economics is the the huge potential benefits of international trade. And, uh, you know, while we can argue about what are the trade-offs involved in, in trade in many, uh, in many sectors, clearly, if China develops a, a functioning vaccine, we all gain immensely if the world has access to that vaccine. And conversely, if the U.S. Uh, develops a vaccine, uh, the world gains immensely if, uh, if, if there's access to the U.S. vaccine. So, Having the institutions in place to allow trade and to allow confidence that trade will take place is very important. Mm. So getting back to uh, this idea of, of uh, providing incentives, and again, you know, the new Macaulay's approach was a bit like a, a lottery in that the successful candidates saw huge rewards uh, from that. This is what you're calling a, a, a pull incentive, uh, whereas the investment in capacity ahead of time or, or during medical trials is, is considered more of a push incentive. Could I ask you to explain this concept of pull and push incentives? Sure. You know, if you think about what is our system for supporting medical research currently, you know, we have a mix of two types of incentives. There's upfront funding for research through university laboratories, through grants from funding agencies like the National Institutes of Health in the U.S. or the Wellcome Trust in the U.K. And then on the other hand, companies are motivated by the ability to actually sell product. If they develop a successful product and they put it on the market, they'll get paid for that. And that combination of some push funding and some pull funding has produced tremendous advances in health technology over the years. I think we need that same combination, or we need some some mixture of the two. You don't want to rely entirely on, on one approach or the other. So in the case of the pneumococcus vaccine, you know, there really was not as much commercial incentive to develop that because the strains that were, the new vaccine that was needed would cover the strains in lower income countries. And that just wasn't as lucrative as as companies were used to. So some of the pull was needed. As you've pointed out, the COVID case is somewhat different. There, there's at least some some pull because there'll be global demand for a vaccine when it's developed. But what we need is we need to finance some of the upfront costs of putting in the factory capacity in advance of, um, of the vaccine receiving approval. And for that, it turns out that some push funding could be very useful. Because COVID is causing such huge economic costs that even just from an economic standpoint, it makes sense to pursue many different candidates. We don't know which of these candidates are going to succeed. We don't even have a consensus on what the chance of success is. So if you're trying to think about how much of a reward do you have to offer for a successful candidate in order to get the companies to, to make these investments, you're caught between two risks. One is the risk you pay more than you need to. And the other risk is the risk that you pay too little and you don't even get a vaccine at all. This is a situation in which it makes sense to pull in a wide variety of companies, even companies that have only a modest uh, estimated probability of success. Mm -hmm. um, so I think you know, relative to the pneumococcus case, probably a greater component of push funding is appropriate. 
And so money, uh, because we're, we're talking uh, billions of dollars of investment here at a time when public finances are being stretched uh, to the extreme. Uh, can governments actually afford to do this? Uh, let me turn it around. Can they afford not to do it? Mm-hmm. You know, the, um, you know the, the estimates are that the world economy is losing $500 billion every month that the pandemic continues. And in that type of a situation, you know, spending a few billion dollars to make sure that we, if we get a vaccine approved, we can have it manufactured and delivered and get people the doses they need quickly. Uh, if you advance the development of a vaccine by even a relatively modest time, with even a relatively modest probability, this is just a fantastic investment from a benefit-cost point of view. You know, just to, uh, to give an example, the U.S., spent $1.2 billion for 300 million doses, so $4 a dose, of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Now, we don't know whether that vaccine will succeed or not, but if there were even just a 10% chance of success, and if this just advanced uh, the, the availability of a, of a vaccine by three months, we estimate that the benefit-cost ratio would be 45. In other words, the benefits, even adjusting for the for the modest probability of success, would still be 45 times the cost. So if you have more optimistic assumptions, you, it would be an even greater benefit-cost ratio. This is really a vital investment for uh, not only for our health, but for restarting our economies. Business founder Alec Hogg chaired a fascinating debate on lockdown strategies earlier this week with leading South African health policy expert, Professor Alan Whiteside, and Nick Hudson, an actuary with Panda, a group that is opposed to lockdowns. Here are some highlights. Given that 40% of South African households have a grandparent living with them, and many in very poor settings, i.e. several people living under one roof, sharing rooms, etc., how does Nick envisage the shielding of the elderly, as described in the uh, GBD, I think that's a Great Barrington Declaration, to be implemented realistically here? It's a very good question. And I think let's just start, uh, where's our starting point? Okay, our starting point is that everybody gets equivalent shielding. So whether you unlock down or you lock down, what that does is it shifts the burden on to the elderly. Okay, if you are doing, if you're not doing an, an attempt to protect them on a relative basis, whether you agree lockdowns have an effect or not is irrelevant, okay? Because all you're doing is changing the timing of death then. You're just delaying the inevitable. If you want to protect the elderly, you have to differentially protect them and allow the disease to move through the rest of the population. What you want to happen is you want to reach herd immunity with a few, as few of the vulnerable as possible in the exposed group, okay? So our starting point, the as bad as it gets scenario, is everybody's treated the same, whether it's under no lockdown or under general lockdown. How do we improve from there? And agreed, it's not straightforward. But the kind of ideas that we've been proposing since April were as follows. We suggested that instead of, you know, you've got all these empty hotels now because you've shut down the the travel economy. In the event that an old person wants to be uh, removed from a household where somebody else is ill, for example, then you, you could use those. We suggested tripling the state old age pension for the period of the epidemic so those people could afford to take measures to remove themselves from danger. 
we suggested depopulating old age homes, taking people from old age homes who are not in an extremely frail condition, if they become sick from coronavirus, housing them in the families, in younger families, you know, because the younger families are just, the, the risk to them posed by COVID is just negligible. And so these were the kinds of ideas we had. In developed countries, you can do things like make online shopping more available, or you can have shopping, special shopping hours for older people or vulnerable people where they don't have to come into contact with the rest of the community. You know, we've got a list of about 20 of such ideas, and I think you've got uh, a, a, a rough idea of the feel of it. Now, would those be uh, completely successful? No, of course not. Uh, contagious respiratory virus is one of the hardest things in the world to contain. But we failed to make the effort. We just went with this flat structure that didn't differentiate uh, with respect to risk. And as a result, we, we in, the, in the phrase that we like to use from one of our the modelers in our team, we put the old people at the front of the bus. We needed them to be at the back of the bus. And that brings to a close your Inside COVID-19 podcast. Until next time. This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery.